The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Gympie Central Medical Centre, bepositive.com.au, Gympie Foam and Rubber and Luscious Leaks. In this episode, I sit down with a kindergarten teacher who has defied the odds by beating stage 4 ovarian cancer. Melanie Fitzgibbon has come out the other side with a new outlook on life while continuing to work with her husband managing their farm, Camelot Camels, and running camel rides on Noosa's North Shore. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Melanie Fitzgibbon, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you for having me. It's great being here. You're a Sydney girl. What brought you to the bush? Um, change of lifestyle, I suppose. Um, I grew up in Sydney and lived there and had two children and realised that this is, wasn't the life I wanted for them. My dad had moved to Curra, up just past Gympie, came up for holidays and pretty much went back to Sydney, sold the house in four weeks and moved. Wow. What was the <laughs> early days like in Sydney? Um, it was actually really fun. I love growing up down there. Um, I was in the Southern Shire, so it's always got the reputation of, oh, you're a Shire girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you travel over the river? Oh, not often. <laughs> no, I did. My aunt lived at Bondi, so I had the best of both worlds. So I was able to hang out at the Shire all the time and then head into the city to see her. Didn't go west very often because that was nearly forbidden. <laughs> what do you think of the way it's evolved down there, the changes in, say, the Sydney area? So I left 20 years ago. My youngest is now just turned 20. So I came up when he had his first birthday. So I've only been back a couple of times since. I think we headed down towards Bombala only a few weeks ago and didn't have to go Pennant Hills Road. A few people said to me, oh, but the tolls are really expensive. And I thought I would have paid $100 for those tolls. It's actually really brilliant. Um, It's a very busy, fast-paced kind of environment down there now. So I'm actually really glad I moved when I did. So what were your first impressions when you moved into the bush? Um, It probably took a year's worth of adjustment. Um, I thought I was living in the sticks, living out in Curra because it was 20 minutes from town then. Um, But I actually really loved it. I had the horses with me and the boys and it was great. Um, And it just sort of poked along. It It was really good. I loved it. Where did you go from there? You got established here in Queensland. What happened? Um, So my first marriage ended and um, I ended up doing um, a Bachelor of Education in Early Childhood up at Harvey Bay. Wow. And um, my aunt had said to me, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I'd worked in um, corporate marketing for a long time in in Sydney, so I haven't always been a school teacher. And um, she said to me, which was life-changing, and I've used it a few times with other people, she said to me, Melly, if there was anything in the world that you could do without restriction, what would it be? And I was like, oh, I don't know, which was, you know, a fairly common answer. And um, it wasn't, she said to me, what about a nurse? And I went, oh, no, <laughs> I, I, I'm not good at being sick and I'm not good at looking after sick people, so that's probably not my calling. Um, but I dropped my eldest boy off at um, kindy and I walked into the room and it was alive the energy there and the laughter and the positive environment it was like yep this is it so it wasn't the the actual job I want to do this it was the environment that I wanted to put myself into um, that drove me to do it so 
um, I sort of I dri- I did the drive four days a week from Gympie to Harvey Bay, backwards and forwards for four years. And um, wow, that's a big commitment. Yeah, I was fairly determined. <laughs> um, my life had changed, and so it was just me and the boys for a while there. And um, and I was committed to finishing the degree. I really wanted to be in that environment. What was the feeling like when you did get the degree, when you got handed the piece of paper? It's actually funny. I wasn't excited about the piece of paper that I was getting. It was more so my rating that I received as a teacher. So having the highest rating gave me the opportunity to be able to work anywhere, which was really my absolute goal. So where did you want to work? I actually didn't know. It was really odd. Um, I bounced from... Education Queensland um, through CNK as well. So for a few years there, I went backwards and forwards. I even did a stint in high school, which was so you did a teaching degree. Yes. So I was a four-year. I'm a four-year trained um, Bachelor of Education Early Childhood, which allows me to be able to work the entire spectrum. Um, so I had worked with additional needs for a little bit. That, however, was not my calling. Why is that? I, um, I just found it really challenging. And I think those teachers are a special, they're a special blend of teacher. Um, I like the, the wildness of children. So they tend to like really structure. So that was not where I was suited the most. Um, I did enjoy working with you two. You two are great because they're confident, they're capable, and they're just like eager bookworms. They're great. Um, however, I kept bouncing back to um, working with the younger, the younger ones, and really love that four to five year group. How do they respond to you? I've actually only just come to the conclusion I'm not the most organised person. Anyone that knows me, all my friends are OCD major, like clean freaks. Everything's organised. I, however, don't operate that way, so I don't even know why they're my friends, to be honest. <laughs> Opposites attract. Opposites attract. But I think because I've been submerged in that environment of chaos, which is four-year-olds, when they're busy doing art or craft or they're outside playing in the sandpit, they have their own organisation. So to me, untidy is busy. So I was, I was at home. It was brilliant. I, I didn't mind at all. <laughs> now, when you were in Sydney, you're talking about corporate marketing. What was that all about and what did you do? So I was a PA for a marketing company um, that did a lot of um, packaging for McDonald's and Burger King, Hungry Jacks, um, and I loved it. It was brilliant. Um, the people I worked for were great. Um, however, I was became pregnant for the second time and I was travelling two hours to work along the freeway. Welcome to Sydney. Oh yeah, so, and then two hours home. So I was dropping my first child off at 6 a.m. at family daycare, driving to work, coming home, I would be home at 6.30 at night. He would already be had his dinner, he had already been fed, he was only two. So I thought this is not the life that I want for me and it's not the life I want for my children. I don't want to be a part-time mum. So I just decided, and but I love working. I've always worked. So I needed to find a happy medium that suited everybody um, and that I felt fulfilled and I could still be there for my children, which teaching just, it was perfect. I got holidays with them every, all on, on holidays. Um, I, the people often go, well, you know, you work teachers hours. I wish I'd known teachers hours before I committed to it. <laughs> uh. 
<laughs> well, tell us about that. I would like to think that I started work at seven and I finished work at four. Um, however, as a anyone who is a school teacher knows that that is not that is just when you show up. That's when you're actually face to face. Um, there's a lot of you're always switched on so you could be shopping and you'll see something your kids will love and you'll grab it so it's always happening you know you become a bower bird of of stuff (laughs) how do the kids respond to this sort of loose sort of structure so there has to be some kind of formalities being at school Um, even though it is kindy it's it's a preparation for prep so in fact you you want to set some boundaries and some structure However, you still want them to be children and that can happen so quickly it can disappear if it's not um, encouraged. We also, part of, part of me always wanted it to be a bit like home. So they spend so much time there that it's nice to have that environment of being relaxed and that they can have that safety and security of being able to experiment and be encouraged to do so. How important is this stage of their education it's the foundation for all their future learning so i always took it incredibly seriously um but it had to be fun it had to learning is fun and that's what you wanted to i wanted to encourage that everyone that learned something you had to enjoy it how about you do you have fun when you're doing it i love it it's great (laughs) (laughs) what's the main thing that's that keeps you at it and keeps you interested the children and even even now, the friendships that we make with parents, um, a lot of them have become really good friends, and and I love them to bits. They're beautiful humans, and um, and quite often I'll I'll see them. I'll have coffee with them, um, and I get to see these little people grow. So I've been at the service in Gympie for ten years now. So I've seen kids in high school now. So it's it's amazing. Like they came to me when they were four, uh-huh. and they're now in high school. Do you get the the stage that uh, you can pick what they're going to be like and then you see them at high school now, as you say? Have you been right with your estimation of what you think they're going to be as a student, a person in life in general? I think it's hard to judge that sort of thing um, because so many environmental factors can change a person's attitude really quickly. Um but deep down, like you know, if they love art, they're going to pursue that sort of thing. If they're outdoors kind of children, they're going to want to pursue that sort of thing too. Um, but not really. They've none of them have completely surprised me. I'm I'm often I often think, well, you know, they love that sort of thing. I've had children that have loved books. So children that have been really interested in reading and, and learning lit- literacy have gone on to win awards and progress through reading. Um, levels faster than other children because they've got that pre-existed love of learning through reading. They've got the passion for it. Absolutely. And I can't, I mean, I can't take all that credit. Parents do a wonderful job at creating those environments at home and we try to link in with what parents want for their children because we're not there to teach them. We're there to help along the road of journey. We have them for a year and I always think they're like my best buddies for 12 months. And, um, and I get to enjoy the most precious thing people leave with me is their children. How important is home life to this early learning? Oh, massive, massive amounts. Parents have a lot of um, pressure on them now, more so than ever. I remember when I was a child, I would play till the, the streetlights came on and, um, and that was to come home. Um, now our environment and our 
communities have changed in how they're structured. So parents have a, a, a harder time. But as an educator and their friend for a year, I like to know that I would be able to provide whatever I can, any support, whether it be educational or community-based and linking them with services they need, then that's my job for 12 months. Big responsibility. It is, but it's something that I love to do. I'm an awesome networker. I love to share share the love and um, possibly because I'm an oversharer, it's easy for me. <laughs> if they just went straight to school, how important is it to set them up for the school life? I think just socially is really important. Um, I look at it that my... I'm a social engineer, pretty much. That's my job. <laughs> Maggie Dent suggests that to all teachers are, are social engineers. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's really quite true. That, that's our job. If you're social, you know yourself, if you have friends, you'll learn quite easily. If you don't have friends or don't know how to make friends, it's hard to learn. You tend to withdraw and you withdraw from everything. So if my job is to become, to help children become really to have that ability to make friends with people then they'll learn it's just a natural progression what do your kids think about what you're doing i often when they were younger oh probably about 10 my eldest um was in trouble for something and i said to him look you know we need to have a bit of a chat and he said we've got to have a bit of a chat yeah and he said to me oh mum, can you just smack me like all the other kids all the other parents and I'm like, no, Dan, we need to have a conversation about it. So um, he sort of, they'd have this look like, oh. So my um, my youngest one, often he often thinks that, you know, the um, the emotional trauma of having to be able to talk was a, was a problem and um, that we'd have to have these conversations about behaviour. I think as parents, it, it there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure of, and not just from um, ourselves, because, you know, we're pretty hard on ourselves as parents, but just as a, for social, social, socially in the, in the community, you have a lot of pressure as well to perform as exceptional parents. And we're not all exceptional about it, you know, ab- about being a parent. Sometimes that's not our skill level, but we, we're great community educators or we're really good at just, you know, just love them. Can you still be a good teacher if you're not a parent oh absolutely I have seen some amazing women that have never had children and they're outstanding outstanding women and 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 men even I've known some men that have never had children and that are school teachers and they're brilliant who makes the best teacher women or men is there is there a delineation of the sexes as far as teaching goes I think it's really unfortunate that there's not a lot of men in the industry now because I think they bring a really good element. There's quite a lot of children that grow up without fathers and they may not have contact with men as general. Um, And those male teachers uh, just bring a different element. My um, younger son had female teachers for quite a long time um, and then he had a male teacher and he just loved him to bits. So I think it's great to have that option um, as far as being better, I think it, that's a totally individual kind of setup. It's it makes no difference. I don't believe. I believe though that there needs to be more men in the industry. But I think that's something that's yeah. I don't have any control or anything over that. Obviously. Why do you think that there's not as not enough men? It's like journalism it used to be very male dominated. Now females are starting to come through the ranks and the numbers are much greater. Why do you think that there's not the level of male teachers? 
I've had a few situations where I've been in that I can see why um, men tend to not follow teaching as a career um, just by children's behaviour and things like that. However, um, in saying that, I think opportunity comes up that they, they look at different things now. So I think opportunity for different industries, um, I don't know. I actually don't even really know the answer, but I think it's a shame, really. You've come through and you're now out the other side. You've had a fairly major uh, situation in your life. What happened? The 9th of May last year, we were in the thick of, thick of doing investigations for health reasons. Um, so on the 9th of May last year, um, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer stage four, which is probably, it's the worst you can have pretty much. Um, I actually received a phone call at work. Now I was in the middle of work. So 22 four-year-old children um, running around busily doing things and the phone rings and my assistant at the time knew what, that there was, something was going on. Like she, well, I'm quite close to Kel. And um, they rung me, the, the doctor rang me and said to me, hi, Melanie, it's, you know, I can't remember his name. Um, I'm just ringing to let you know your results that you have stage four ovarian cancer. Just told you over the phone? Absolutely. What do you think about that? Well, it was, it was surreal at the time. I went, Should oh. he have brought you in? Well, it was actually a doctor from Brisbane. So it wasn't right. even my GP. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, and then I had a child tagging on me, oh, I can't find the glitter. So I sort of thought, okay. I went, oh, okay, thank you. And he said, oh, we'll let you know we've got an urgent appointment for you in Brisbane Women's Hospital. Okay, then, bye. And that was that was a conversation. Um, I then carried on with my day and my assistant... <laughs> was that a male or a female? It was a man. It was right. a male doctor, yeah. Bedside manner? Um, well, he was very polite. Like, he was... It was, it was very polite and it was a... I sort of closed the conversation down. Was it cold, though, the way... No, he- no. He was... Look, he was... He, he just sort of, it was like, oh, I'm just trying to let you know, you know, this is what's going on. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting situation. Um, and my assistant looked at me and she, I, she could see, obviously, my look on my face had given away that something was wrong. And she looked at me and I said, don't even, don't, just don't. She goes, okay. So we carried on with our day. And at the end of the day, she said to me, what is going on? I said, well, um, they've just told me. And she went, they told you on the phone. I went, yes. Yeah, I can't believe that they've, they've done that, that they didn't sort of even tell your GP to give you the message in person because you'd think that's the sort of thing that you really should get. So I had had, um, from the March, I had had extensive tests, um, scans, PET scans, um, biopsies, so all you sorts knew, of things. So you, you knew something was wrong? Oh, absolutely. So the way it started was when COVID hit, um, we had no children at school. And then, um, and it's a, it's a bit of a funny situation on how I actually came across that I was unwell. So my friends think it's hysterical because they know me well. Um, however, two, uh, three weeks before school holidays in April, um, we had no children. So we were running around visiting kids at home, my sister and myself, while I was still having all these tests and scans and things. So she was, she knew, she was in the thick of it. She knew exactly what was going on. And I was very transparent with them because, you know, I've been with working with her for nine years. What were the symptoms, though, when you said you knew something was wrong? Well, 
how it triggered was that um, I decided that I was going I was going to have to stay at home for two weeks with um, my husband and one of my kids and so I decided that vodka was my friend like everyone else we sat at home and drank chocolate and ate chocolate and drank alcohol so I did um, I wasn't rolling drunk but I did drink a lot it's interesting because during the COVID epidemic apparently alcohol sales have gone through the roof absolutely so I, I actually feel quite blessed that I did it so mm. what actually happened is that I drank a lot over two weeks um, and I ended up with what I thought was a kidney infection because I drank so much so I could hardly even breathe in wow. the pain on my right side was so bad so I went back to work and my assistant said to me, look, you really need to go to the doctors. I said, yeah, I think I've drunk too much and now I'm just embarrassed. So, <laughs> and it was a lot. I think, I'm even nearly embarrassed to say, but it did save my life. So I had drunk nine bottles of vodka over a period of three weeks. Wow. And that's homemade vodka. That's not bought stuff. So I have a very good friend to thank for making that for me. <laughs> Um, So I went to the doctors and um, she sent me for a scan because she wanted to see I didn't have kidney stones. Um, And when I went to just locally Gympie, um, they did an ultrasound and things and she had rung me that day and she said, Mel, can you please come in with your husband this afternoon? And I thought, oh, this can't be good. Didn't even think that it could have been cancer. Didn't even come up on my radar. I thought, oh, you know, I'm getting a bit older now. And, you know, ladies' bits tend to go a bit weird. So I was thinking that's what that was all about. Um, And she said to me, look, they found a mass on your ultrasound. Oh, okay. So that's how it, that's the initial. So she was, she's brilliant. And I still see her. Um, And she doesn't pull any punches. I go in there and say, look, I've got this. Right, go. So she's, she just holds no bars. She's brilliant. So scans and things like that and all the medical staff that I've encountered over the time have been absolutely outstanding. Um, I think they should all be driving BMWs and Lamborghinis as far as I'm concerned. Um, And so they rung me and then they sort of, it was very fast-tracked from then. I saw the oncologist. It didn't really hit me um, straight away. We went to Brisbane to the initial appointment with my husband and we were sitting there and she said to me, well, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm like yeah but what are we doing and uh, my husband's sitting there with this just quiet what was his reaction to to the whole situation it's actually interesting when they told me at work the first thing i thought of was how was i going to tell him because he had lost his father only a year or a half or two years ago to cancer so my initial thing how can i put him through this again so when we were sitting in the in the um in brisbane and she's saying to me, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm just, I'm really sorry. I'm like, yeah, but what are we doing? It's like, an interesting indictment on you, though, that you've got this news and you're worried about other people. I know. And I think about it before, like, I've thought about it later because I've done a couple of interviews about it and I've done some speaking because people want to hear and they want to realise what what the situ- what the process was. Um, but the people around me the most... Um, like one of my dearest friends lost her husband to cancer. So I was thinking, how do I put them through this? How do I, how do, I do this? And, um, but my attitude was, well, no, how do we fix this? It's not an option. It's not, it's not a death sentence as far as I was concerned. Um, so 
she she put me in touch with the oncologist and up to this point I was still pretty good um we saw him and I pretty much walked out of his office and cried the entire two two hours home from Brisbane and couldn't stop at this point I hadn't told my mum and dad because I didn't know I wanted didn't want to worry them unnecessarily they'd both been unwell so I thought, well, I don't need to worry them unnecessarily because then they'd be ringing me every hour, you know, to see how I was, which was fine. Um, but I thought I needed to find out 100% of what it was, but also what the plan was, because I knew then I could say, well, this is what I've got, but this is what I'm doing. Um, so we hit chemo pretty quickly. So we did four rounds of chemotherapy, um, which was pretty hardcore. I wasn't ready for how that was going to be so what happened um we didn't we had the scans i did the chemo i've done my chemo in gimpy and those women up there are brilliant in the chemo ward in, in gimpy they just they're fabulous they're really good um wasn't expecting the first one i went to they said to me look your hair will come out and i everyone that knows me i had long black hair for a long time and then i had bright red hair and i had bright red hair at the time and um they said look it will you know it'll fall out the oncologist was very you know this is what's going to happen um and it got to my second chemo and my hair hadn't come out i thought maybe i'm one of those minor group that won't lose their hair so we had been at the beach and i decided i had a hair appointment either monday or something and i hadn't washed my hair i thought i can't go to the hairdresser's with dirty hair so i thought i'll go wash my hair before i went and i went into the shower and I washed it and it's coming out in chunks. Mm. So that was probably out of all of it, out of absolutely everything that happened, that was the worst. Because it came out, it, I mean, women lose hair, it's a standard joke, women lose hair all over the house. Um, <laughs> we, we blame the dog and the cat, but it's ours. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my husband came, came in from down milking and he's come in and I'm a mess. An absolute mess and I had messaged Kira um, who was my hairdresser at the time and I said to her look my hair's fallen out I can't come in and she said to me look why don't you just come in for a coffee come in and just hang out how cool is that she's beautiful she's really beautiful and I, I sort of gathered myself together with half my hair had fallen out and as I'm drying it with the blow dry it's just blowing everywhere like everywhere and um, so it's not just your standard loss it was like I had a ball the size of a softball by the time I dried my hair Wow. It was it was the most I never realized I had that much hair to start with, but it was <laughs> it was absolutely devastating. So I went in and saw Kira and she said to me and I said to her, Look, you know what? Just clip it off. And she went, Are you sure? And I went, Yes. And actually I was worried about her because her mum had been unwell. So there was all these I mean, everyone's got someone that's been unwell. So you worry I was worried how I would interact with all those people. So she clipped my hair off. So I had a buzz cut. And um, by this stage, I hadn't told a lot of people. I hadn't mentioned it. Um, I Actually, the way I did tell them was that I sent them a – actually, sorry, before that, I had seen a lady down. She's the admin lady for the oncology department in SKU. And she gave me some really good advice. And you know how you get that one person that says something to you and it changes the way you think about everything? She said to me, Melanie, not everyone will mirror how you feel. That was really the best advice I got. So the way I told everybody, I didn't want to ring them and then have to deal with their emotion because I was trying to keep mine under a good 
good structure. Yeah, how was your emotion at this stage? You know, it's funny. It's a year ago, and it's it's odd to try and remember. Um, but I sent everyone a text message on Messenger. So I sent them a photo of my buzz cut um, because I really wanted them to see it before they saw me in person. So I, they would, whatever happened, wherever they were, they would be able to deal with that in their own space and their own time without me having to help them. I know it sounds a little selfish now that I think about it, but I needed Not to protect. Not at all. I think it was a smart way to do it. Yeah, I needed to protect how I was feeling and how I was going to cope with it all because I get quite sensitive. Like if I see someone upset, then I, yeah, it's hard to stop it sometimes. When you looked in the mirror though, did you do that and just go, how am I going to cope with this? I looked in the mirror for the last year. I mean, my hair grew back in November, which I love. Like I just love it. Um, and I would look in the, I wouldn't look in the mirror. I couldn't look at it. It to me, it wasn't, yeah, it was, it wasn't me. I wasn't looking at the person that I, I am. I had no hair. Um, at one point, so I did four rounds of chemo. Then I had extensive surgery right in the middle of COVID. So the day that um, I had my surgery, my son drove me um, to Brisbane. We had a, um, an interview to do on Noosa and it just so happened it fell on the same day. And I said to Wayne, no, please go and do that. It's really important. It's a it's for TV. Just go and do it. He goes, no, but I need to be with you. I said, you can't come in. You're literally going to come and drop me at the front door. And he said, okay, are you sure? Yes, I can cancel. No, please don't. Please go and do this. So my son and I drove to Brisbane and he dropped me at the front door. And as soon as I've pulled up, I've lost the plot. So he, I said to him, and poor Maddie... <laughs> Um, Losing the plot. What happened? Oh, I, I crying, hysterical. So I, mind you, I had enough bags packed for as if I was going to Alaska for a week. <laughs> I had two big suitcases. I don't know what I was thinking I was doing. However, I did take my laptop. I even took the FPOS machine so that I could process payments for Noosa while I was away because I, you know, just assumed that it was just going to happen and I was going to be right. Um, but the whole time, um, he dropped me off and I said to Maddie, if I ring you, you have to come back and get me. And he said, Mum, as in, you know, he's a teenager at this point, I've got no credit on my phone, so it's suspended and I can't answer it. So you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to be brave. Wow. I know. <laughs> right back at you, kid. Exactly. So I couldn't even I couldn't even ring him because he had no credit. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, you kids. So I walked in and still at this point, hysterical so I sat on the lounge there um crying profusely and they've come over a couple of look and is there anything I can do and I went no there's nothing so in the hospital no one there was no one with anyone so everyone was going in alone wow yeah it was tough um people that were having babies were allowed their husbands but other than that you there were you by yourself because of the COVID. Yes, right. So I sat in the waiting area from it would have been about eleven in eleven in the morning, in my gown and my little hat, waiting to go in. You couldn't have your phone, so daytime television. That's all you had. <laughs> till I went in at four thirty in the afternoon. Uh, daytime television. That's mm. depressing enough. Exactly, and so I sat there and cried the whole time. So when I went in. Um, the the um, the doctors and everything. I had two female doctors, 
and they were fantastic um and they they said to me is there because i'm still crying at this point um you don't realize how much how much your tear ducts carry <laughs> was was it this time after being so stoic for so long all of a sudden that it was your release valve i think so because there was no one there mm. i didn't have to be strong i didn't have to be this strong person that everyone knows i am um so they said to me if look is there anything we can do for you and i said for the love of God, when you sew me back up, can you make sure my tattoos are straight? <laughs> <laughs> so um, she said, of course we can. And um, so after all that, after it was all done, um, they, they came and saw me later on and they said to me, look, we like to think that we get 100% of everything. They said, while we were there, we took out your appendix. I'm like, woohoo, don't have to come back for that. Um, they had, I had tumours on my, below my kidneys, which was what the pain was that I was feeling. Ah, so not stones. Not stones. It was a tumour because stage four is where it's everywhere. I had a tumour on my heart. Um, wow. But nothing was, I had a tumour on my heart, but nothing was attached. So these things were all just floating around. Um, both ovaries, um, uterus, and also on my bladder. So... They extensively went in there and, you know, I've got a fairly decent bit of scarring to celebrate still being here. Um, but they said to me, we got, she said, we are so excited, we got it down to 2%. So I've gone from stage four ovarian cancer down to 2%. And she said to me, the next lot of chemo you have will knock that over. Um, and then you'll go on um, your 12 months worth of maintenance. So um, I was thinking, well, I'm actually not in a bad way now. I'm this. I can do this. I've got this. Um, the nurse, the particular nurse I had at Royal Brisbane Women's, she actually took a photo on her phone for me. So I've got her forever. She was probably an angel. Had to be. <laughs> um, but so I got to come home early, which I was so excited about. Um, they, they said to me, look, you know, because you're in Gympie, maybe you should stay longer i said look i don't mind coming back but please let me go home so they did um so still in the middle of COVID, no visitors no one had any visitors um so went home which was so it was i've never been so happy to drive in driving to give my life um and be <laughs> home for you know three days and then we went back down to brisbane for them to check everything um, so after that, three, I had three more rounds of chemo. I wasn't able to do the fourth in December last year just because of the, the toxicity buildup, um, the neuropathy in my hands and feet, um, and just overall was pretty full on. So What happened? So the neuropathy um, that um, you can get in your hands and feet actually gets to the point where you can't walk. Um, wow. Yeah, so um, I couldn't put my feet on the ground. So it would take quite a while for me to actually get out of bed so my feet and legs hands everything would ache so I was now on I don't even know how many painkillers and things I was on just for that so it seemed like the more I took the more chemo I had the more medicine I had to take to cope with it it's interesting because I have heard and it's been described that sometimes the cure is worse than the actual ailment no, because I'm still here. So even though I look, I actually kept, it's funny, I went to die because I'm best mates with Di who's got magicality. 
And a few years ago, I bought one of her journals. Now, talking about dice, she's been on the podcast and Magicality is her shop here in Gympie where she sells crystals and all sorts of alternate stuff. So hello to Die. Yes. And Di, and actually, I only found out, worked out the other day, Di is my longest friend I've worked out. Um, but I bought a journal from her probably four years ago. And I've, I've done this over and over. You buy a journal and pretty pens and all this sort of stuff and go, I'm going to write my, you know, what happens every day. And it sat there. However, the first day that I went to my first appointment at um, Sunshine Coast Hospital, I took it with me. And I've written it ever since. So I'm actually, I had to go buy another one. Ah. So I've got two books now of my journey through it. So I was reading it the other day, just flicking through, and I'm like, wow, you legend. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Um, Because one of my notes to all my friends was, please do not research stage four ovarian cancer in Google. Um, Being 46 when I was diagnosed. Why not? um, Because... The outcome is very poor. Okay. It's very poor. It's it's. There's no other word to put it. Um, I said, I've been told by my oncologist and, and nurses and everything that because of my age, I am an unusual age to get it. So everything's in my favour. I have not been sick at all over my entire life. What's the unusual? What's unusual about your age? So they said to me, you either get it when you're younger, so around 18 or so, or you get it when you're over 60. So for me to have it now, they're like, well, you know, this is this is actually good. So I'm still strong enough to fight it um, and have the mental capacity, I suppose, just in my own makeup and chemistry to have a bit of a, I suppose, a, a tough head about it all. Um, but the odds were good. Like Has I, it changed it over the fight that you had? Yes, without question. Um, I no longer um, worry the small stuff. However, I do value that if something is wrong, if someone feels that there is something even so small, um, go to the doctors. They, um, I had one of them mention to me, it might have been one of the nurses, she said to me, you know, if you go to the GP on day one, other than chest pains, you're a hypochondriac. If you go, say, you know, day five or six, it could just be a virus and it'll go. Day seven you need to get yourself to the doctors because anything longer than a week is something you need to look about. And people don't, you don't think? Um, I'm actually part of a women's group in town, which I just love. It's only new. It's called We Rise in Gibby. And I did a presentation there last month and our I spoke about the treatment and so forth and how I found out about it. Um, and we made a commitment to everybody that everyone that was there, we made a list of dentists, doctors, perhaps mayors, um, um, anything general checkups with GPs you know if you're an old like a, I went for my general checkup you need to do those um, anything else that you need to do you need to make that appointment if you haven't done it because we get busy everyone gets busy and you get those little notes from your GP and your dentist oh you know you do for your checkup and you go oh there's nothing wrong I won't worry about it so unless I had drunk that vodka and annoyed that tumour because of probably my kidneys were working a bit harder, the outcome could have been very different. We may not have been sitting here today. It would have been very different. So bless the Russians is all I can say. (laughs) 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 I I had um, one of them ask me, so have you always had this drinking problem? I said, no. I said, I actually have never drunk like that ever. Um, And it wasn't like I was rolling drunk. I was just happy 
like for three weeks I was just walking around the house happy because I had nothing else to do you can only clean your house for so long um and yeah it just it, it's been life-changing absolutely I want to take you back to the drive back from Brisbane you said you cried all the way yep what was your husband's reaction at this stage he held my hand the whole way that was it what he had nothing else to say <laughs> wow it's special yeah but it was always um that it was doable I never questioned that it wasn't he must be special he's awesome <laughs> loving the bits how has it changed your relationship um well considering when I had my first lot of chemo and then I had surgery and then I had some hair grow back I was so excited mind you it was probably like every third hair on my head um then when I stopped when I actually stopped chemo completely um and now I'm on the Avastin now for 12 months I had this weird kind of haircut happening it was like it comes through thick in one spot and then I had all this wispy stuff and I said and he said to me you're gonna have to do something about that I said well can't you just clip it and he goes I suppose I can and we're staying there I said to him I said I bet when you said when you married me the day on the day we got married I bet you thought you'd never be shaving my head he goes (laughs) no I didn't so we're much closer much closer now did he think he'd lose you I think he always made me feel no I think he always kept I think there was a lot I didn't see what didn't you see that you found out about now um, I haven't really found out about anything, but I, I know in my heart there's been moments where he's been by himself. You have to live with him on a daily basis. How have you seen changes through what's happened to you affect him? Because often the partners don't get acknowledged. It's all the attention is on the person that has the problem. Yeah, absolutely. So when I sent my message out to all my friends and told them what it was happening, I said, please check in with Wayno. Because he needs he needs you as well, um, and they did, they did check in on him. Um, but I think we're both a lot more patient now. Things that would generally, you know, you'd lose your plot over, you know, something ridiculous. Um, and now it's like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know, we're going to live through that. You know, it's not the end of the world. You've got a flat tire. You know, we have the capacity to go and change that tire. If you don't have your health and you know i'm a bit of a control freak so i had no control over me getting better except for my will i suppose and my belief system so fortunately my friends are fabulous talk about your belief system how does that support you at this time i think it's just the support support i know i've got support so i know at any given moment i can phone a friend um, regardless of how far away they are, um, and know they're there. Does it still affect you, though, the whole thing? Does as emotionally, is it something that you think you're through or do you think you'll get through? If you'd have asked me that probably two months ago, um, I was sort of in and out. There was a time where I had sort of a three, three it was about three weeks, I think it was, um, probably the darkest that it's ever been, um, that I felt that this was you know, maybe this won't happen. Maybe I'm not strong enough. Um, But now there's no doubt. Dark times, what happened? I suppose it was questioning whether things were going to be successful, whether, you know, have I, what, it was more so, I suppose, what happens if this doesn't work? How, what, what do I do? Like, how does, you go into that, well, if I remove myself from this entire situation, 
how does everything else poke along? And I thought, hang on a second, I had to pull myself up a while. I think, well, hang on, thoughts are things. So if I keep thinking this, this is how it's going to be. So I don't give that an option anymore. That's a big change. It was like a big kick up the ass, really. (laughs) (laughs) Did you need to do that to yourself or could it have come from somebody else? I actually have been seeing the psychologist at the hospital and we talked about legacy and all that sort of stuff. And um, I thought, well, I'm actually really not, I haven't finished yet. I, I, that's not my legacy yet. I, it sounds pretty final when you're talking about a legacy. Well, we all have it. So it's how we're remembered. Um, and Wayne and I joke that, you know, I'll get through stage four ovarian cancer and then, you know, the ripe old age of 85 get hit by a bus because I can't get across <laughs> the road fast enough. So, <laughs> so it, um, yeah, now it's not an option. Now I know I'm going to be fine. How will you use this experience to progress to the next part of your life, the second half? I've made it an absolute necessity to make sure that I tell as many people as I can about it. But like even the other day from that presentation that I did, there's quite a few women that went and made those appointments. Wow. They went and did it. And I thought, I was so proud of them. And I said, who's done it? And um, they've already said a lot of them have. And I thought, you know what? Legends, absolute good girls. That's, you know, if, if that is what it's meant to happen, then brilliant. Do you think that it is going to be part of your future, as in sharing this story and telling people about it? I hope it is. I really hope it is. I hope it's something that um, inspires others to go and get checks when things need to be done. Because there were times I know where you've had to hide away and you've had to get inside yourself and really understand yourself a little bit more. And is it good to be out the other side of that? Oh, without question. So I'm a real extrovert. So when COVID hit and all the all my introverted friends were like, woohoo, I'm like, oh my Lord, what am I going to do? I went into like major panic mode. Um, and I said to them, you know, if you want to FaceTime me, just do it. Like, because I'll do it. I'll talk to you. Um, so before it all started, however, I went through a period of time where I wouldn't leave the house because people stare. They stare when you're wearing a hat because hats people don't wear them generally like pretty like I have a girlfriend that crochets and she made me the most beautiful hats Hazel did and posted them from Mackay for me and they were just they're gorgeous um and and I showed her a picture and she just made them for me and everyone said I love your hat they're gorgeous so I thought yeah I'm only wearing it because I have no hair I was really fortunate though that I had no hair in winter because I love beanies so (laughs) and scarves so I was fine through there but as it got hot I, um, I got to the point where I'm like, I just can't wear it anymore. So if I went to friends' places, I'd take my hat off. I wouldn't care. And I didn't care. They didn't care either. They were just happy to see me. Um, but there was a time there where I wouldn't leave the house because people – I would hate going shopping. I would hate going anywhere because I just – yeah, it was it was traumatic just to go anywhere. And I was telling one of my boys, I said to Maddie, you know, people stare. He goes, I won't stare at you, Mum. I'll come with you. So, so um, we went to the shops, and he said, "He said you're right." He said, "People are staring." And he said, "Why are they staring?" I said to him, "Look, I don't think they're staring because they're mean." I said, "But they're staring because they know they think they know me, but they're not sure if they do." So I've still had it when because they've, I, you know, I'm a school teacher, um, so I would have parents sort of, you know, looking around corners at me to think if it was me because I didn't make it a big public thing. Um, I told my closest friends, but then eventually when I was ready, when I knew that 
what was happening was progressing and we were we were all good, I put it on Facebook. I told everyone that was on there that, that they then knew. I mean, obviously the parents knew that I was when I was where I was at kindy. I had left them. A, I sent them a letter when I was leaving, um, but generally no one knew and people were like we wonder where you were like you're always out there doing stuff and we just wondered I would put things on but I would never put my face on so it wasn't till um two months ago was the first time that I've actually taken a photo and put it on as a public this is me and everyone's going oh you've got the most amazing hair (laughs) my hairdresser's a blonde expert she said well we're not making any money out of you now (laughs) 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 so the hair was pretty important it was catastrophic to say the least i mean i would walk in i would say hello to the ladies at chemo that i would sit there for six and a half hours have my chemo um i did buy bravery presents every time i had to have treatment um which what sort of things Oh, you name it, it happened. Um, I bought a guitar because I wanted to learn to play. Um, Did you? Yep, I've bought a guitar. I've always wanted to learn. So that was my last one. I've bought, you know, I bought a T-shirt. I've bought jewellery. Um, I went obsessive and bought a heap of scarves and hats. And I think I bought wigs and, you know, you name it, I bought it. I had six and a half hours to burn at chemo. So I was going to, but I no, I had to stop that. I had to pull that rain in real quick. <laughs> <laughs> Did you think about a wig? I did. I bought three. Actually, I bought four. Lots and lots of dollars. Um, when Kira did my hair, she also cut my wigs. I put them on once. I thought, there's no way on earth I can wear this. Once my hair was gone, um, I actually didn't have an To me, I didn't have an identity as far as what my hair was going to be. Um, I was we, we I laughed with a girlfriend because I've always I had black hair, so every time my hair would have regrowth, it would be white. So we used to joke. I said, "Oh, I could." And this is—it's not a joke now. Um, a few years ago, I said, "Oh, if I just shaved my head, then I could just let it grow back, and I'd know what my true color is." <laughs> so thought words are things. Words are different things because I had to shave my head, and now I know what color my hair is. Do you think that um, you could have done it different though, with with the way you went and approached it by just embracing it? Do you think that that was the right thing and then hiding for hiding out for quite a while? I think that was how I processed it um, because bravery, you can't be brave all the time and being positive all the time can be exhausting. Um, so I went out when I felt good and I stayed at home when I didn't. So I knew I had a calculation of I would go for chemo, then I would have five to seven days after that where I would just hit the ground and then I would start to come out of it and that's when I'd come out of the house again. So, but my friends were really good. I told them what I needed. I said, from you guys, this is what I need. Um, One of them was, please do not come to the house. Because to me, that was my only sanctuary. So I didn't want visitors. But I was more than happy to have coffee dates. Like, you know, ask me to come to your house. I will be there. Um, Which I did. I did go to a lot of their places and I'd walk in and some of them have children and they'd look at me and I'd I'd take my my scarf off my head or my, my little cap and they'd, Oh, look, it's growing. Like, these kids were beautiful. (laughs) You love kids. Yeah, they're good fun. You were talking about uh, the reaction because fashion has changed. Having no hair and having a bald head is really not as a standout as it used to be. It's a little bit more vogue. Did you decide to embrace that look? No, no. (laughs) 
I hated it. Although, mind you, I'm actually really enjoying having short hair now. Like I'm thinking, I thought, no, I'm going to grow it all back. I'm actually thinking I really quite like a really cool pixie cut. So I'm actually enjoying having short hair. Um, I've never had it this short ever. Um, But no, it was never because it was taken from me. It wasn't my decision to have it taken off. Your kids played a pretty pivotal role. What was their reaction to it all? I suppose I sort of glossed over it a fair bit. Um, So Wayne and I are a blended family. So um, we had one of his boys that lived with us and he he was really good. He would, you know, we have this standard thing that we never spoke to each other in the morning because we both like our coffee first. (laughs) Um, And he just, they treated me normal and that's all I wanted. I made that very clear at the start. I didn't want it this, oh, how are you, you know, oh, how's it all going? Those sort of people I avoided because I did not need that. I could do self-pity if I wanted to. Um, Did you? No. Probably every now and again. Um, But Wayne was really good at, you know, stop it just stop it let's go let's go do something let's go down to the camels and that's that's what i do go for a walk the camels that's mm. one thing we needed to talk about yes tell us about your camel business so in 2016 we opened camelot dairies um and wayne's a dairy farmer he wanted to go milking cows again i'm like oh for the love of god do we have to so we want to do something different so we looked at goats and that wasn't an option and why not um, I think just the size of the size of the um, what you needed to do it um, and the amount of um, just the process in it was probably not for us. Um, but we did like the idea of camels. I've always loved camels. Um, always. Uh, they just, I don't know, they just, I never had a lot to do with them, but I always loved them. Um, and so we opened Camelot Dairies in 2016 uh, and then progressed from there, milking sort of thing and having babies and all that sort of stuff and where did you source them a lot of them came from the desert um so they came in on trucks we i had a fella ring me and say to me hey mel i got some camels do you want to come have a look they're out of birdsville went okay um prior to that we'd bought 11 from just up a bottle they were just in a paddock we bought them first um and went out to max's place at condamine and he said to me they all came off the truck so they'd been out of the desert 15 hours in the truck into condomine straight off the truck and they were really quiet i was expecting wild brahma crazy sort of thing <laughs> um wayne and i have both had horses and cattle so it was you know i i was not expecting this placid standing around kind of just staring at us kind of attitude um and i i i got to know max before then and i had mentioned to him and i think he was just really good salesman I had said to him that I had grew up in the city and Wayne was the country. He grew up in the country with like 2,000 people. Um, and he said to me, Mel, whatever you don't take is going for slaughter. Wow. Yeah. So that hit me like a rock. And I, and Wayne said, look, let's go have some lunch at the pub. So we're out at Condamine Pub and I'm sort of sitting there really quietly. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, we're taking all of them, aren't we? And I went, <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> so we brought 38 home. So Max said to me, look, you know, you take one, you take... 38 it's all going to cost the same transport because they've got to run the truck over so we brought them back um we sourced a bull from mount isa and collected a few along the way and sold a few that weren't suitable for the dairy um and we we sort of thought well they're standing around for 13 months you know growing their children so we can milk them so we it was a natural progression to start to train them 
Um, in saying that as well, we opened the farm for visitors. So they would come once a month for cupra and cuddles at Camelot, um, where they got to try the produce and lots of things, which was really popular. It was booked out every month, which was great. So you're still doing that? Uh, no, no. It's evolved a lot since then. Um, so from there, because it was popular, we opened the farm itself for every Sunday. And that was – so we, Wayne and I were still working full-time at this rate – so I was still teaching. He was working in, um, at a macadamia farm plus milking. And that was in about 2018. So we were still pretty busy. Um, and the farm on a weekend on a Sunday was just, it was great. The, we had a couple of camels that were doing rides. We bought a little mobile kitchen so we were, and a cappuccino machine, which was amazing. <laughs> um, we saw some local coffee beans and we we're doing camel chinos. Camel chinos. <laughs> <laughs> um, freshly baked scones which were really popular um, from a recipe that I got just I think it was a country women's association you can't go past their gear their cooking's beautiful there's some great CWA books oh fabulous um, so scones were sold out every week um, we do camel chinos um, milkshakes all on the camel milk um, and it was really popular as well uh, towards the end of 2019 we opened noosa camel rides so we got to this point now that we thought we really can't be doing all this this is getting a bit out of control um so we closed the farm visits because we really wanted to be out more with the camels we wanted to lift their profile because they don't always have the best reputation um why is that um, I think just because of YouTube, people tend to send the worst of everything around. And um, I, I mean, I get tagged in them all, so I don't mind. I often think, oh, good, at least I have a heads up for when people say to me, have you seen that one? Where? <laughs> I go, yes, but have you seen the long version of that one? Yeah. Um, and um, so we closed the farm. So now, as of today, or not as of today, as of last week, we've actually stopped milking. So we no longer run Camelot Dairies. We transitioned it to Camelot Camels, which means we do the Camelot Camels side of it does a lot of the, does camel training and sales, as well as all the events. So agricultural shows, festivals, expos. So we do rides out at those. And then we have Noosa Camel Rides, which is on Noosa North Shore Beach. I'd like to break that down to what you're actually doing. Let's talk about camel training. Yes. Who brings a camel to get trained? Um, people that generally buy them and they get them unhandled. Um, we only sell our camels handled majority of the time um, because if you ask a vet to come and look at a camel, often they'll ask, "Can is it handled, like has it got a head collar and lead rope on? And if the answer is no, then it's sometimes hard to get a vet out. Really? Yeah, they can, they, they're wild animals. They're classed as wild. So... Um, it's like anything else. If you have a dog that's never been socialised or handled and then you try to pat it and it's going to bite you, well then, you know, that's how it is. But we, we educate puppies really young. So camels tend to be, the, you know, the, they're wild for a very long time. Well, you've got these 38 camels. How long did it take you to settle them down so that you could milk them and work with them? Well, some of them took two years. Hmm. It took a long time. So... Um, the ones that we bred and as we went we learnt more so we learnt what not to get what to get ain't what, that the story what was the yeah. biggest lesson that you learnt that they respond really well to kindness really absolutely doesn't any animal yes 
but people aren't always kind. They're not kind when they think they have to dominate. So you can't dominate a camel. We learnt very quickly, and we, we joke about it now, that they're so very sensitive that they're like having women only. So Paul Wayne has to keep all these women happy. Even though some of them are male camels, they're very sensitive. So, <laughs> so they respond very well. Look, if you reprimand them, you've like you've broken their heart. So they're very, they're, they respond so well to affection. Um, we've had some that won't walk on the truck and Wayne will go and pat them and give them a kiss and they'll just follow him up. <laughs> it's, it's, it's outstanding. <laughs> How's Wayne with them? He was a dairy farmer, as you say. How has he had to adapt to the whole camel experience? So Wayne was a show jumper and also obviously dairy and had meat cattle as well then when we when we he has a natural affinity with animals so he just he's a he reads them really well um and can and it's a very he's very observant so i think just he and he's not like me he's very relaxed i'm relaxed but he's very mellow so to him he doesn't go out and do work with them go okay i've got an hour this is all i've got he goes out there with the attitude it will take as long as it takes and if it takes all day then so be it so he's um but in saying that though he's really good at setting boundaries with them so once they know their boundaries like (laughs) you know talk about camel boundaries then absolutely they're like children really if you if you say female female children (laughs) female children (laughs) uh well actually no because they can be very very funny so they're like little boys with funny funny humor um we've got one in particular who before he goes on the truck and he only does it with maddie Maddie will go to get him and he'll run around the truck and Maddie's chasing him and Aber thinks it's hysterical. I'm sure Aber thinks it's hysterical. And then he'll just run on the truck. But he only does it with Maddie. If any and I go to, Wayne and I go to get him, he'll just stand there and he'll come over and he'll just wander along. But as soon as Maddie goes, he goes and he takes off and runs around the truck and then runs on the float on the truck. It's just it's the funniest thing to see. So they've got very distinctive personalities. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, they're all every one of them responders has responded really well to kindness so very gentle and i mean they're such big animals and they can be very you know people see them go wow like they're big and they are they're they're two meters off the ground like if you're sitting up there you could be three meters off the ground they're big animals um but i often think they're a bit like a labrador you know they'll do anything for food they're very (laughs) they're very they're very food driven um but they respond really well to kindness um, we've had some really, we've made some really good connections within the camel industry, um, as far as you know, networking and things, um, and and that's been great too. We've we've got we've got some really good friends in there now, so it's great. What's the camel industry like? What what drives it? Um, well, it's it's becoming more diverse now. So you've obviously got the rides, um, you've got the um, and the milking industry as well, which is it's it's getting there, but it's it's going to take some time. Um, and people are now starting to use the fleece as well. So I have a girlfriend that made um, that made my hats actually, because she's so good. She um, she made she spun some wool and made a bag for me. So that can be done as well. Um, they just the meat industry, as far as that goes, it's not that hasn't taken off at all. Um, and I think that's more of a cultural thing as far as Australia goes. Um, overseas they eat them without question we eat cattle without question so yeah could you do that would you eat camel i have had it 
It's certainly not my preferred meat. Um, what does it taste like? I suppose it's it's a bit gamey, um, and probably I find it's between beef and lamb. That sort of kind of, I mean, it's nice. I mean, you could have it like as far as a slow cooked beef or things like that, but it's certainly not my my choice. You know. Now the Noosa camel rides. What happens? Tell us all about it. It took um, two years of planning to get Noosa camel rides up and going. Um, and it has to be the most beautiful part of the world. It is just breathtaking. Um, Noosa North Shore, you have to go over by barge. So you're, it's exciting even before you get there. I'm not sure, I keep trying to remember, trying to work out how many barges are actually left in Australia. There can't be a lot. I know there was one down the Hawkesbury River. I don't even know if that's still there now. Um, but, you you know, you go across by barge. So you've got this, the remoteness and wildness of the, you know, Sandy Strait National Park. Um, and we operate within the park. Um, so we have a permit through national parks. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about, the paperwork to get it all going in the first place. How did that all come about? Two years. <laughs> it, it, it took two years of planning to, to get it passed through um, because you, you, you're in a very delicate environment. So, um, And we are very respectful of that and feel blessed every day to be there. What was the process to get the permits who did you have to talk to and what levels of government um so we work through national parks over at nooseville um to Wanton, somewhere wherever that office is um and it was more so providing them with our idea of what we wanted we put forward our application and then they would come back with to us yes you can do that no you can't yes you can have that yes you can't no you can't um we, we went on site with them to discuss the location and access to the beach um and then um yeah poked along ever since since 2019 what's the reaction to people that come and how do they find out about it um i do marketing through obviously socials and things like that um and we our, our guarantee and you like to have a guarantee with every business our guarantee is that you will always get a good photo um and you always do the the environment there is outstanding it's beautiful it's untouched um, every time we go there our section of the beach has no vehicle access so you're not having to deal with vehicles so every every day we go down the oceans come in it's wiped the beach clean and we walk on it the next day it is just gorgeous what are the camels like on the beach oh they love it they love it um as i said they run wayne's gone down today and they've pretty much fought each other to get on the truck really yeah so we have when we take them out i always suggest to people when we take them somewhere they get fed breakfast at home before we go but then when they get on the truck and we go somewhere they get second breakfast so i say to everyone it's like having a coffee at home and then going out and having eggs benedict and a cappuccino at your local cafe so why would you not want to go so they get second breakfast when they get to the beach and then they get to walk along the beach for 45 minutes and then come back and go home so our rides are 45 minutes each and we do three a day and that's it so we we make sure we never overworking them um, but we get to walk through the national park through the bush part and then go over the sand dune and it's 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 breathtaking it's beautiful do they like the water they didn't at the start wayne's actually now swum them in the ocean um we've got one that he's still not that keen but will go in um but we've got a few of them that just love it they um especially in summer when we've had a ride they've done three rides for summer 
and Wayne will take all their saddles off and walk them down and take them for a swim and they just love it. Do they need to be led with a rope, a halter, a harness to uh, go down or are they uh, restrained most of the time? So they're tied together in a train. So we have a train leader and um, Morgie is our train leader and she's always, always a train leader. Um, and Wayne leads her down the beach. So people often ask, oh, you know, do we gallop? Well, no, you're only walking as fast as Wayne can walk. So it's a wander up the beach and um, and a wander back. What's the reaction from people that get to go for a camel ride the first time? It's funny, when they first get on, they're like, oh, this is, you know, they're tall and they're big. By the time you're walking halfway back, we've had people fall asleep if, because they're that relaxed. Um, we take a ton of photos for them. So they, they'll video when they're up on up on the camel or they'll they've we've had people facetime friends and things while they're riding guess where i am and look what i'm doing um and so the the collection of photos so i actually really love the fact that they're creating memories you know these are lasting memories that they've got photos of that they can go and show people and and it's it's ticking off bucket lists you know we've had i think our our most senior rider is probably i think he was 96 Wow. Yeah, it's awesome. Do you get people coming back for another go? They enjoyed it so much. It's like, oh, I've got to have another go at that. We've had um, grandparents bring grandchildren, which is really nice. And they say, look, we don't want to ride, but can we go for a walk with them? I said, of course you can. And, um, and Wayne will quite often go, hey, do you want to lead them for a bit? And they're like, oh, really? <laughs> so it, um, it's it's nice to – and people quite inter- – they interact a lot with them. So – it's not a matter of getting on and getting off. You you get to take photos, you get to pat them. Um, I give them a rundown, whoever's there, Wayne's there or Maddie's there, tells them about every camel, their age, their name, where they've come from. Um, and I think probably the biggest selling point is that we don't sit the camels to, to get on because um, that can be a real put like off-putter. Um, so we've got a, a loading platform on the side of the truck. So people walk up a few stairs, throw their leg over and they're on. So it's easy. When people first get on, you say, do they gallop? Do they? But what's the reaction when they actually, someone from the city gets on one of these beasts? I actually really love the smiles on their faces. Like, it's just, we very rarely have anyone go, I want to get off. We, they just don't want to. And um, we've had some people go, oh, is that over? Um, and then we've had some people go, oh, gee, now I can't move my legs because I've been sitting and riding for 45 minutes. <laughs> Saddle sore. Saddle sore. Um, but the beauty of it is that you don't need a skill. There's no skill needed. You, you're being led up the, pa- up the beach. They're all tied together. So it's a camel train um, and there's two seats per camel. So children can ride with their parents, which is what they really love. Um, and obviously we've got weight restrictions and things as well. What was Parks and Wildlife's reaction when you first went to them with the proposal and said, hey, we want to do camel rides? So they did have a previous camel permit on the beach. So there was one before. So they didn't, they, they were fine with it. So um, it was just a matter of working through the paperwork and it's always a time thing. Then there was the fires and so we had to wait for that to, they had to finish with that before they could get back to us. So the priority being, you know, obviously fires throughout National Park and uh, Noosa and all that sort of stuff when the, it was on fire. So we sort of had to wait for that to happen and that's why it took so long. But, um, um, you know, we worked through it and, and we've got a really good relationship with them and we maintain where we are. So we look after that as well, which 
we sort of think it's we're blessed to have it every day so we, we make sure that it's taken care of there's the old saying the auctioneer's saying it's not where you start it's where you finish are you surprised where you are with your business now you started up milking and where well, you started up getting camels for a start are you surprised where it's evolved to i actually am i remember when um because wayne and i know not to do things you know think things through for six months like we'll just go yeah let's just do that um and i remember we had bought 11 camels and we only had six acres at the time and i had to send a post to all my friends going look does anyone know where there's any land because i've just bought 11 camels (laughs) and they're like Melanie, what have you done? And I'm like, yeah, well, we're going to open a dairy. And they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> so um, I actually am um, because it's just continued to grow. So I often think that, you know, five years ago, if I was doing the same thing I was today, five years ago, you know, how very boring would that be? Um, and life's meant to change. It's not meant to be the same. So I think... So the only constant is change. Absolutely. And I think it's great. It's, it's you know, Wayne and I love adventure. So although we've come to accustomed to liking boring, boring is good. <laughs> boring can be really good too. So um, I think as long as things grow and progress, then um, – and, and and going in different avenues has been great. Like it's it's been exciting. Like we did um, an activity scene last year at, down at a school – and it was the first one these three camels had done and they actually they surprise us the most because they're so adaptable they stood in an outdoor um, church which was just beautiful at the school that the kids had built it was lovely Um, and they got to listen to the singing which one of ours absolutely loves singing he loves it Um, he thought they were singing just for him I'm sure of it um, but they loved the kids. They let them pat them and all that sort of stuff. And we were dressed up as three wise men. It was <laughs> fabulous. I, we had a ball, anything to dress up. Um, and they've done, the camels have done movie sets and things. What's happened there where you've done movies? What's Tell us about what uh, those experiences were. So it was actually for, they recorded some footage. It was for a live stage production that they wanted to run um, screens behind the performers through for this theatre for Aladdin. So they needed a camel and all that sort of stuff and, and riding up the beach and all that sort of thing, which we use Morgie for. Um, and she just took it in her stride. And we had all the other camels there too. So they were like her cheer squad. Like, you can do it, Morgie, you'll be fine. Um, and yeah, they with all the, you know, big fans and people buzzing around and they just, they're just chilled. Here in Gympie, they have camel races. And I've heard that the same camel will always win is that correct do they do they have a, a an order when they're when they're doing when they're not tethered um they have their own social groups so if you're putting you know someone with someone that I like they're not going to hang out very long I don't know much about the racing I have been out to Tara out to the races out there and it's fabulous um, there are we don't do racing ourselves um, we have got a couple of X races that we use for rides now. Um, Aber, the one I mentioned that runs around the truck, he's won. However, I think the only thing he races for now is the feed trough. <laughs> um, but he's very sweet. Um, we do have friends that do do um, down under camel racing. And in the, in the camel industry, I suppose, racing has been quite quite up there as well. Like They have them the circuits all the way through Queensland and 
Um, I think some of them have not running this year because of COVID restrictions, um, but it's really nice. Like Tara was cancelled this year because of COVID, um, but I'm, I'm excited to see the others going. I don't know whether we'll get out there this year because um, we're still growing Noosa and, and sort of trying to sort of climb back from COVID not working. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to see them going again. It's really good. How has COVID affected the camel rides? Oh, we had to stop. The national parks were closed. So um, that was, yeah. And so all the, and all, and all the events. So every event that we had booked in for, all our rides. So a substantial amount of income, but we still had to feed them in drought. So, so feeding them in drought, no COVID. I was getting with um, treatment for cancer and chemotherapy. So when you ask me what Wayne's like, he's an absolute bloody legend. <laughs> there is that. There is nothing. I know, and I'm not even going to say it. But he, he, he is just yeah. He's a legend. He's my absolute idol. I love him to bits. Yeah, what did he do during this time? He's dealing with you, he's dealing with the drought, he's dealing with the fact that the income wasn't there. Uh, is it back? And uh, how did he cope at the time? Relatively well. Um, yeah, I mean, I was caught up in my own, you know, festivities of dealing with chemo and am I going to eat today and all this sort of stuff. Um, but he, he just kept going because he knew one of us had to keep going. And we've always been like that. If one of them, one of us falls in a heap, the other one picks it up and, and does the batten. Um, we've always done it. How did the camels react to you when you weren't well? Did they know? Do you, are they that sensitive? They did know. There was one in particular, Ginger, and she would she would hunt me out. And I've also got another one, Duke, and we haven't had Duke very long. We, we bought four camels um, and a wagon, which we're super excited about. <laughs> um, we couldn't pick it up either because during COVID because they were down at Taree, but it had travelled 3,000 kilometres from Hermans, I think it's Hermansburg in Northern Territory, I think that's how you pronounce it, to Taree. So um, we got it from Denise and Bowery down at Taree and we got the four camels and the wagon. Um, and Duke especially, he has just, he follows me around like a puppy dog. Um, so he, we, he and I have a real connection. Um, and he's, yeah, he's just beautiful. Um, and I've, I've since found out that where he's come from. Um, and I'm now, I, I talk to them quite often about him because I think they're excited to see that he's in, you know, today he's actually walking on the beach today. So more sand. <laughs> Do they make good pets? They do. Um, they're not as, when you've got cattle and horses, they can be quite destructive to the ground, um, whereas camels don't. They've got that soft pad. Um, so around dams and things like that. In saying that, um, they will, they can, if they've already learnt it, to step over the top of a barbed wire fence. Wow. Um, we've got electric, um, and one of our girls knows the fence line on the other side is only barbed wire, and often we'll see her wandering up the road like, oh, hi, because I've stepped over the barbed wire fence. It's a bit low and it's not fabulous, but she, um, she'll she step over it because, you know, it's easy to do. But in saying that, where they're paddocked at the moment is um, it's just a barbed wire cattle fence and they're, they're all in. So they don't, they don't tend to barge out often. But the difference between the ones in the desert to the ones that are here is that ours are farm-raised. They're used to people, they're used to fences, they're used to troughs, they're used to getting fed. Whereas the ones out in the desert, you know, just roam and take whatever they want when they want. So it's a lot different situation. When you pulled those 38 camels from out uh, west, what were they then like when they came in to essentially uh, 
to be domesticated. So we were expecting wild, as I said. I've, I've got this one cow in mind that we saw a few years ago and it was a Brahma and it was just feral, just wild as. Um, so that's my reference of danger now because it chased me. So I'm, I'm pretty, that's my my level of caution. And that's what we thought we were getting. We didn't expect that they would just come off the truck and then they would just stand there. And that's what they did. They just stand there and looked. And But then we had to teach them to drink out of a trough. We had to teach them that what hay was um what people were what cars were um one of them in particular today beth um she was one of our ones from birdsville and she's walking on the beach today so she gets to go for a walk on the beach gets fed twice a day in the morning um and um gets to swim in the ocean what's the biggest thing you've learned about camels since you've had them patience (laughs) because they are in no rush so they're in no hurry to do anything. Um, so therefore, you have to have the same mentality. So when people ring us when we're at the beach, oh, the barges hold up and we're running late. And I'm like, yeah, it's okay, we'll wait. And they're like, oh, thank you so much. Like people are really appreciative of just you giving them the time, you know, because you can't get time back. Time's the only thing you can't trade. So you need to, you know, use it wisely and 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 relax in it. You know, we're always so busy. Sometimes it's nice just to stop and enjoy the smell of roses kind of stuff. Is that something that you're now starting to really appreciate after what you've been through with the ovarian cancer? Absolutely. And I encourage everyone. I, I actually even challenge people's th- thoughts, if I can, to, for them to think, you know, hey, when did you catch up with your mum last? You know, I often, I don't tell them what to do, but I ask them in certain ways that I know will get them thinking at, at, at the very least thinking you know when did you last go for your last pap smear oh gee i don't know well you know planning i I, I mean i'm not a good planner i've never been a really good planner but now i've learned that planning has to have an end date if it's got an end date it's successful so um di and i were actually talking about it the other day but if you've got an end date then it's a plan if it's just a list that's all it is is a list is that the biggest thing you've learned out of what you've gone through? I've had to plan. Wayne and I have share a Google calendar now, which is brilliant um, because we had to. We had to. He had to know where I was for appointments and things like that. So planning is is has become really important. You know, just doing whatever you like when you like is nice if you've got no responsibility. But responsibility comes with security, really. You've open noosa camel rides and you're doing that have you got any other plans that you're looking to use the camels to basically expand and grow so we have our wagon which we've wayne's chopped the top off it now um so we intend to fix it up and actually be able to go traveling with it so it's a bit more of a long-term goal and we have to set a few things up in place first but we want to be able to jump in it and you know Go away for a few weeks. With the wagon, are the camels pulling that? Yes. yes. How many camels go with you when you do that? Well, we haven't done it yet. So <laughs> we're, we're sort of learning along the way. Um, the four that we've got that came with the wagon, they've got their own pecking order and they, they can pull their big, strong, their strong camels. Um, and they don't have to be big. Um, Sally, the, the front one, she's got the attitude of the biggest camel. Like she's, she, she clearly has no spatial awareness because she has a big attitude with a, you know, a really strong, big heart. 
um, and she's gorgeous. So Rihanna is her best friend, and then you've got Duke, which is my best friend, and then you've got his friend, Yosef. So there's four of them that pull the wagon, um, and then you would tie others to the back. So we're in the middle of pulling it all apart and starting to remodel. So it's it's Wayne's absolute goal to be able to get this wagon up and going. So we're in the middle of designing and you know, I get to choose the colours, so I'm I'm pretty excited. Sounds like a great adventure. Absolutely, it was. It's just something else that we wanted to do, and um, so between Noosa Camel rides, Camelot camels doing the events and festivals, the beach rides, the camel training, we do some sales as well when we have ones that you know, uh, we don't. We've got some for sale now that we we're not using. So, what does a camel sell for? Um, look, out in the desert, you can pick them up for a few hundred dollars, but you're dealing with something that's never been handled, never seen humans, never seen a truck. So good luck. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> we've been there. We've experienced that. Um, they can range from probably $1,000 for still something that you can't get near, right up to ten, fifteen thousand dollars 15000 wow. Ride camels you can't buy. Um, they're rare as hen's teeth. So you, you just can't buy them. One hump or two? One. So dromedaries are what we've got in Australia. Bactrim are your double humps. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and an inspiration, and I hope some people are inspired to go and get the checkups that you've suggested because it's important. Absolutely. That that could save your life. Absolutely. And you've got to think it's not just about you. It's about your kids and your friends and your family and even your dog. How's your dog going to survive if you're not there? Melanie Fitzgibbon, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Gympie Central Medical Centre. GMED is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick, ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions? When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the diagnosis right with Gympie Central Medical Centre. Contact them in Gympie on 54811873 or you can find them at 35 Excelsior Road. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose-fitting filling foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. They'll also help you get down and dirty with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. Aha, not so squeezy. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the marked price. That's right, 10%. But that's only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. We can't go without mentioning Luscious Licks, 100% fruit ice cream. You can find them at local markets and all sorts of events. They are a really delicious alternative to conventional ice cream. Plus, the good news is Luscious Licks is completely dairy-free, gluten-free, and with no added sugar because there's nothing added. And best of all, it's guilt-free because it's healthy and it tastes great. Look out for Luscious Licks in the Pink Marquee at a market or event near you. And finally, the show is brought to you by bepositive.com.au in Yandina. 
Beepositive.com.au is your one-stop shop for first-rate beekeeping supplies and raw honey. It doesn't matter if you're just a backyard beekeeping enthusiast, semi-professional apiarist, or just interested in bees. Check out Bee Positive on the Sunshine Coast or on the net at beepositive.com.au for a wide range of beekeeping equipment and advice that's backed up by more than 20 years' experience. Bee Positive also provide apiary services including swarm relocation, hive setups, and Steve is always ready to share a wealth of knowledge about proper beekeeping practices. To get started, check out the online shop at bepositive.com.au and they'll promptly ship orders Australia-wide.